Hello, and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and today, on the 200th anniversary of Napoleon's death, I'm joined by Ruth Skur, the critic and writer, whose new book is called Napoleon, A Life in Gardens and Shadows. Ruth, welcome. I suppose you, you say in the introduction, a well-meaning friend said, Napoleon? What more is there to say about him? What, you know, how, how did you overcome that to start with? What led you to think, I should write a book about Napoleon? So I think approaching anyone's biography, you come at it from who you are. And that's the point of the Charlotte Bronte quote that I have right at the beginning of the book. And she thinks about the death of Napoleon and says, you know, how should we approach this subject with a great pomp of words or with simplicity? And I think on that spectrum, I was much more towards the simplicity angle and also accepting that there are many Napoleons and it's not nobody's life is something that can just be conquered and told one way. So I approached this iconic, enormous historical figure wanting really to find an individual way of looking at that life. And the way you chose was gardening. Now, I'm certainly not a Napoleon expert, but if you'd said, oh, Napoleon, you know, keen gardener, I'd go, what? You know, that's sort of... It doesn't seem the obvious thing, does it? It's absolutely not obvious. It's almost surreal. And I think I, in a sense, am proud of that. But there was a a very famous print of him on St Helena at the end of his life, leaning on a spade and with a straw hat instead of the famous bicorn hat. And for me, I was always haunted by that image, by the idea of someone who had risen from obscurity to such great heights and then ended up right at the very end of his life with just one patch of ground left to impose his will on. It seemed to me incredibly interesting to try and think about his state of mind at that point in his life. Obviously, that's right at the end of his life. And then going back through the life in in chronological order, Almost uncannily, I began to notice gardens cropping up throughout. And that became the framework for me for going episodically through and looking at him from unusual angles uh, or, or, or taking those, seeing him in those contexts in order to build, as I said, a, a, a very a, a fresh picture or portrait of him. But this garden theme i mean it's interesting resonant i think that you said you know this tiny little square of land for him to impose his will upon it does seem to kind of touch on something to do with the idea of his relationship to nature and relationship to essentially what he was what started out as his givens and how he was able to put into them was there a parallel i mean you know what what did nature mean to him? Because that's a very politically loaded term in the context of the French Revolution as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So the first thing is 
the imposition of will on nature, which happens in anyone's garden. I mean, all gardeners are trying to shape and curate the the natural world in, in a very defined space and with particular fashions or particular preferences and personalities. Napoleon had the most enormous strong will that you can possibly imagine and of course the main forum for him imposing that is on the terrain it's it's on France it's on Europe it's in on the battlefield and understanding how to to think about the weather and and the lay of the land and all those things that are relevant to battles so there was a resonance there for me insofar as it's the it's the counterpoint of the battles looking at the gardens but you're absolutely right to to point out that the whole idea of nature is so fascinating in this period coming out of the French Revolution and the way in which the Enlightenment ideas had fed into the French Revolution. Rousseau is someone whom Napoleon is extremely interested in throughout his life and the sense also, of course, that everything is open for question as, as to the natural world and the natural order within society as well as a result of the revolution. So literally throwing over you know, the old regime, throwing over the old idea of the natural order and moving towards the revolutionary idea of a meritocracy, of the values of, of liberty and equality... That is the starting point for Napoleon. I mean, with, without that, there could not have been Napoleon. That is absolutely his beginning point. Well, what is his relationship to the revolution? Because on the face of it, it's extraordinary that, you know, you go within about a decade from this supposedly egalitarian revolution to, with some large degree of popular consent, a hereditary empire. So initially, his relationship to the revolution is one of real enthusiasm and participation. He becomes acquainted with Robespierre's brother, uh, Augustine Robespierre. He is excited about the idea of a new order, uh, the rejection of the corruption of the old regime, all those things. But he's essentially a soldier and he is in favour of order. And increasingly, the revolution is years of, of turmoil and chaos. And he comes to see the opportunity, really, to end the revolution, to, to say that, you know, the, enough of, of the civil chaos. And by the way, we can win these international wars as well. We can secure the legacy of the revolution and we can move on from the revolution. Now, moving towards himself becoming increasingly powerful, first of all, first consul, then consul for life, and then emperor of the French, that, as you say, happens actually within a remarkably short period of, of time. But actually, from his point of view, it is the continuing quest for order and stability. That's how he justifies it to himself. But he goes a bit beyond that, doesn't he? I mean, you know, you can say honour the principles of the revolution while perhaps imposing some sort of order. 
you know, you don't necessarily need to commission 100-foot-high marble statues of yourself by Canova and commission imperial eagles and put bees all over everywhere and create triumphal arches and move into Fontainebleau. You know, it's going a bit beyond, isn't it? Let's be fair to him about the 100-foot-high statue of Canova. He was horrified when he saw it. First of all, because Canova had insisted that it was a nude. And secondly, because he quite rightly feared that people would think it was ridiculous. So no sooner does it arrive. And I mean, interestingly, when it's on its way over to France, the instructions are that if if the ship is is, uh, surrounded by the English, they've got to throw it overboard because the last thing he wants is this statue being taken, as of course it was uh, given to to the Duke of Wellington eventually and and is in in London, Aspley House. So I think the megalomania side of him, why, why put bees all over everything? Well, you know, from his point of view, he is trying to build a new order on the remains of of the French monarchy. Um, There's been this generation complete and, you know, within living memory, traumatised by the destruction of the monarchy. When he takes over the the Palace of Fontainebleau, you can still see in certain places the the old, the fleur-de-lis and and the other emblems of the monarchy that have been removed um, uh, forcibly and and, and chipped away at during during the revolution. So so he thinks, well, you know, have something else, but something that sort of builds upon that idea of of a stable regime at the centre of, of France. Can we go back to your fir- the first garden? Because there's an absolutely haunting, kind of semi-apocryphal or much contested image of him, you know, the child Napoleon. And it has him kind of setting out troops in this little garden, uh, it, you know, in pebbles of different sizes like these. So this is, for as a biographer, this is a very familiar trope for the early life where there is a apocryphal or you know an anecdote about someone what they were like at school and into that anecdote the later life is projected so the idea oh the 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 suggestion in the memoirs was that he had a small plot of land whilst he was at school at a military school in in France and that he very much enjoyed looking after this small plot of land. But later writers, um, Dumas, for example, and, and others, imagine that rather than sort of, you know, taking some pleasure in growing plants, which actually, you know, lots of children do, like I certainly did, he spent his time there organising the pebbles into battalions and military order. And then, and then there was a sort of a, an attack on his garden and he, and he appropriated two gardens on either side of his. And this was the beginning of this expansionist aspect. So it's, it's interesting to see how you sort of take these tiny, tiny fragments of uh, the early life of someone who goes on to, 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 to have an extraordinary life and, and embroidered them, really, with, with, with what we know to, to have happened subsequently. Uh, that, that must be one of the real challenges to you, I mean, throughout as a biographer, that Napoleon, not only are the, the sort of central events all much mythologised, but even these anecdotes. I mean, he was a person who was a sort of tourist attraction in his own lifetime. Absolutely. So once he's exiled, 
to Alba and indeed uh, the longer exile at the, at the end to, to St. Helena, he literally is a tourist attraction. Um, people are, boats are stopping and people are catching a glimpse of, of this uh, most dangerous man in, in Europe, if not the world, who's now in captivity. So I think there's also a, a sense in which he spent time on St. Helena investing in the idea of his afterlife, you know, dictating his memoirs, determined that they he would he would put the record of, of his life forwards and he wanted it to be projected in into the future. I mean almost on the model of Julius Caesar or one of the other classical heroes that he, he he was interested in that actually he has a has an ear for and a, an eye for posterity especially when he has lost everything in worldly terms this idea of cultivating his own myth i mean did you get much of an impression that he had any sort of sense of humor or sense of irony about himself i'm thinking there's the only thing that strikes me is this moment in elba where he suddenly thinks, you know, I'm going to start invading the next door patch of dirt, you know, these sort of tiny little yes. islands he starts. And that's right. He's saying, no one will be surprised when I take over this this other tiny island that no one's ever heard of. They'll, they'll think I'm up, up to my old tricks. I definitely see him as having humour. And I mean, like all incredibly successful and powerful men, I'm, I'm sure there are many more episodes where people are laughing at him behind his back and 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 some of those certainly come through in my book but I mean an earlier example is when he and Josephine go to visit the garden at Ermonville where Rousseau had died and during the revolution Rousseau's remains were moved from that garden and taken to the Pantheon there in, in Paris but actually, for a period of time, Rousseau had been buried in that garden and, and certainly had died there. And the garden had been set up to almost like a theme park for Rousseau's books. You know, there, there was, uh, you know, Julie's house and, and, and from, from La Nouvelle Louise, etc. And he, um, Napoleon and Josephine go on a sort of day trip to this garden. And Napoleon, this is post his experiences in Egypt, starts criticising Rousseau and saying it is due to this madman, Rousseau, that we're in the mess we're in. And the, the, the curator of the garden says, well, I'm, you know, I'm very surprised to hear you, of all people, criticising the revolution and criticising Rousseau, you know, when obviously, you know, you, you owe a lot to these events and to Rousseau's ideas and Napoleon says well you know uh, only time will tell if the world would have been a better place if neither Rousseau nor I had existed so you know there's there, <laughs> there is that sense that he's too intelligent not to realize that there will be a debate about his legacy though there will be disagreements about uh, what he has or hasn't achieved another ex- example of just quickly of, of the humor I mean this really is the joke on him, but when he he and Josephine sort of buy Malmaison, which it, it's not actually their first home together, but it but it becomes their marital home, and it becomes really a second center for 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 state business as well. Whilst whilst he's there, and they get these architects they're very very keen on Percy and Fontaine to to revamp it. And Napoleon's very busy in a way a lot, etc. And he comes back and and he sees that they've put this 
tent-like structure over the entrance. And he says, well, well, this looks like an animal tent at a fair. You know, why have they put this rubbishy thing here in, in my house? And, and, and what, by the way, what's going on with those flimsy buildings at, at the gateposts as well? So he obviously, you know, he, he, he can be very funny, whether, whether intentionally or not. You know, you talk about shadows as a theme in the book, and there is a sense of a sort of shadow or a series of shadow lives for Napoleon. I mean, he said somewhere, didn't he, that you quote, that actually originally, you know, rather like Peter Cook saying he wanted to be a judge, but he didn't have the Latin. You know, he said, oh, well, I originally wanted to be a scientist. Absolutely. Yeah, he, he, he would, uh, had it not been necessary for him to, you know, get into the army and sort out Europe, he, he would have been liked to have been Isaac Newton. He was fascinated by science. He often is surrounded by scientists and, and interested in them. I mean, they, he, he, he takes them to, to Italy first, then, then to Egypt. And then he, he's so proud when he's elected to the Institute. And, um, you know, even to the point of irritating his soldiers by putting his, you know, it's like saying, fellow of the British Academy, you know, member of the French Institute before, you know, general in chief of the army. So he, yeah. he's absolutely. So, yes, there is that sense of of the shadow lives. And I think for me throughout the book, the contrast between a silhouette and a shadow is very, very important because the silhouette is iconic, static, imposing, whereas the shadows that he casts and as you point out you know the shadow lives and indeed the shadows he casts over the lives of other people around him they are very fluid and they're various in in kind and and you can't reduce them all to 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 that iconic silhouette another shadow that i wasn't aware of was napoleon the author of fiction i mean there's novels there's short stories What do you learn about him and about his character from reading his fiction? Because you're a very distinguished fiction critic. I'd be interested to know what, you know, that's an in for you into his, his mind. I think for me, actually, it's his love of other people's fiction rather than his own juvenilia that is of importance. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody would claim that those short pieces that that he wrote when he's still training as a soldier in his youth, that they have any claim for, you know, the shadow life of the great writer we never got because he was too busy, you know, conquering Europe. But what they do show, as with, with many people who, who, who love literature, is a fascination for the forms and an openness, really. I mean, he, he is an enormous reader all his life. I mean, travelling libraries with him, the importance of having books with him in exile and what he is going to take, people sending him books. And he, like lots of us, I, I mean, he returns to to some of the same works at different points in his life. So I already mentioned Rousseau, I mean, we can stick with that example. But, you know, he first came across Le Nouvelle Eloise, he claims, when he when he was very, very young, I mean, sort of nine or ten, and was completely blown away by it. And then right at the end of his life, when he's on St. Helena, he reads it again and, and, and he thinks, actually, you know, this does stand up. And then he reads it 
you know, six months later or whatever, and 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 he's like, no, I've really, I'm, I've changed my mind. You know, this, this, I'm, I'm done with this, this novel actually, and so I think his, you know, it's it's very very serious that engagement with literature, with writing, and I, and I think that's what the early fiction of of his that that we have is about. A point you make, and I think you, it's Virginia Woolf, you quote very pertly to this effect early on. She says. You know, with these sort of great men who are generally hymned by other great men who see themselves in them, women exist for them as a way of reflecting them twice their own size and that they need to see the women as small as a result. If that diagnosis is correct to Napoleon, what do you make of his relationship with Josephine? It's quite complex because she's harder to to make you know she's not a dolly bird she's older than him she's quite sophisticated she's quite experienced she has all sorts of aspects of independence what do you make of their relationship and what what he got out of his relationship with her well I mean initially he got an enormous amount out of his relationship with her both personally and politically I think it was one of those um examples of, of of a coincidence of both the things that really mattered to him. I think there's no doubt from his early letters that he had a very, very intense sexual relationship with her and was very deeply in love with her. But it was also the case that she was extremely well networked and those connections that she had through her from her from the position she'd had before the revolution and then with the, the under the new regime and 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 the directory that's then governing France Barra for example she's able to really introduce him to people and he's he's still very gauche he's from Corsica he he's not a polished example of the french aristocracy like like she she was i mean she had a, she had a complicated background but she certainly moved with enormous elegance and 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 fluency throughout the circles that he was interested in at that point and then of course their relationship begins to change and and it and it turns on this issue of fertility and the fact that although she had already had two children to whom he had a very good relationship and it was a, a wonderful stepfather she couldn't have another child and that became increasingly politically important for him to the point where he almost sort of steals himself to put her aside and and it's clear that you know he he initially is reluctant to do it and and and, and by the time he does do it he's made up his mind and 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 that's what he's going to do he seems to have been quite relaxed at least after a bit about what in many relationships would seem a bit of a bump in the road when he finds out that she's cheating on him while he's away. Well, he's cheating on yeah. her as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, this is there, there's there's a large amount to, I'm, and also, I mean, you have to wonder: is cheating even the right word in this context? I mean, it seems it's it's pretty open. Um, you know, he tries. There, there's a time when he's in Egypt where her son, uh, Josephine's son, is with him, and so out of sensitivity to his stepson, he is you know sometimes uh, doesn't want to expose him to his new consort in Egypt but he you know there may have been some form of double standard there initially when he he, he's very very fed up when he first discovers that she 
has been unfaithful to him. But then I think over time, I mean, they've just become extremely tolerant of one another in, in that regard. And that was her point. I mean, she 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 didn't care what he did. She just didn't want to be divorced. Yeah. And when she was, you know, she's replaced by Marie Louise, you know, who gives him a son, who gives him an heir. Do you think his feelings for Josephine go away? Are they do they run in parallel with his relationship with Marie Louise? Because there's evidence from the end of his life that he was very devoted to Marie Louise as well. Absolutely. I I think he I mean he at least I mean, you know, he put this forward in his memoirs that, you know, he'd been incredibly lucky in both these women and, and etc. I mean, there there no doubt are other angles and other things going going on there. But he was devastated when he got the news that Josephine had died. And he was absolutely distraught to be separated from Marie Louise and from his son at the end of his life. So I do think that those were very real relationships and, and, and uh, you know, then, okay, it doesn't involve sexual fidelity, and and he has illegitimate children, um, with whom he, you know, he he has very good relations with their mothers as well, but the point is that he, somehow, you know, there comes a point where where he thinks the future of France, so the stability of France, depends upon him having a legitimate son. I was intrigued also by the question of his attitude to religion. Because he seems to have been very, have a, a very sort of um, pragmatic attitude to it. I mean, when he's in Cairo, he more or less says, you know, oh, maybe I'll convert to Islam, you know, um, and encourages Islam. Then he's all for, you know, bringing back the Pope when he's consolidating the gains of the revolution. Do you think he had any core of belief at all? Yeah, I, I mean, that's very difficult. I mean, I, I would struggle really to answer that question even about myself you know do I have any core of belief um you know I was brought up a Catholic I'm a I'm very 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 lapsed and 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 uh, on a on a good day I'd say I was atheist um but does that mean there aren't elements there he prioritizes the political importance of brokering a peace with the Catholic Church it's of extreme importance to him that the Pope will come for his coronation on Fran- to France, and that is an, an absolute priority. But then, when the Pope excommunicates him, and uh, you know they they they've fallen out again, he's very high handed. Uh, he has him arrested. He has him brought back to France, and and in fact back to to Fontainebleau, where he had been greeted the first time on en route to, to the coronation and then he's brought back virtually as a prisoner to Fontainebleau. So that's all very, very, very political. When he is in exile, he has a chapel set up. He is very interested in what's going to happen to the chalice, etc. in his will. He claims that he is dying in the Roman Catholic faith into which he was born. But then he also comes out with things like, you know, well, you know, actually, I'm I'm, I'm a worshipper of the sun. And, uh, you know, the natural world is everything and, um, and, and, and says things that sound much more materialist in their commitments. So I think it's very, very difficult to know but one thing's for sure he's he's not frivolous on this topic but but politics will always trump everything this relationship between napoleon and the natural world which obviously is the central thread of your book 
You say somewhere he was always short of time, which is a very sort of resonant in this context, it seems to me, because obviously most people who like gardening, it puts you in a different relationship to time. Was that what he got out of it? Because, you know, he was always in a hurry. Was gardening the, the sort of flip side of that? I think in terms of tranquility, peace, rare moments of reflection, yes. So at Fontainebleau, he had a spiral staircase installed so that he could get down from his study into the private garden that he had at the bottom of his apartment within the chateau. And so he could go there in the middle of the night when he couldn't sleep. And very movingly, after the first abdication, he sits in that garden and he's observed kicking a hole in the shingle under the bench that he's sitting on, you know, this thing. So I think that these these frameworks of these gardens, they, you know, he goes into the garden for a walk with a distinguished guest and, and, and after a dinner, they're moments of perhaps relaxation, perhaps some confidences are exchanged, and certainly he it's important to him to be to have access to those spaces and, and as i said you know even in the middle of the night actually that kicking the hole in the shin- shingle reminds me of another detail you mentioned i think it's after the second abdication you say he, he made a dent in the desk with his pen was yeah. that because he was so cross he sort of bashed the pen on the desk in a sort of fit again i mean we do have to to perhaps question the complete historical accuracy here there there is the desk um he signed at it uh, there is a dent in it you know <laughs> thing like that but this is this is the story i mean and i think you know it's from the from the paintings of that moment from the and from from the sort of you know the, the emotion of it as as well i i i, I think it's credible Yes, he obviously did have strong emotions. You have another lovely detail of him, as he's, I think it's as he's leaving power again, of him hugging the imperial eagles, that he makes them, they lower down the standards, and that you have him embracing them three times, this great, I mean, powerful sort of emotion. Did the style of gardens he was interested in reflect something about his personality. I mean, did he disagree with Josephine? She seemed to like things yeah. that be a bit more à l'anglaise. So there's the, there's the, 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 the French style and the English style, the, the genre français and anglais, and they basically prefer one of each. He really likes the topiary, the straight lines, the impressive order that can be achieved in that very, very traditional regulated style that's associated with with the um the the french gardens dating right back in into into the 16th 17th centuries josephine prefers uh what is referred to as as, as a sort of the english style which is much more um, uh, supposedly free, although, of course, all of the natural effects are very curated. And it's picturesque. It includes vistas, winding paths, charming follies, and just a sense of, from Napoleon's point of view, frivolity, really, is, is how he sees it. And he's very irritated when she keeps on 
insisting that they purchase more and more land around Malmaison and then sort of knocking down the houses, as, as he says on one occasion, in order to put up a few rocks, you know, as because it's going to be the, the latest grotto or something. So there is a big clash there. But that said, I mean, he, there are also occasions on which he is more open-minded and he can appreciate the other the more informal style of gardening as well so I I think he I think he has his preferences but he certainly understands that what she is trying to achieve is is he's prepared to support it yeah though he does I mean strange modern resonances he does seem seem to get very fed up when she's overspending Wildly, yes, doesn't he? He's quite tight-fisted. Yes, I know. It's so funny. It's Boris and Carrie, isn't it? You have to admit. Yeah, it's like these bills that are coming in. And from his point of view, you know, it is to have something that looks like an animal tent on the front of the house. And he's not that happy about it. Um, and so he's got this constant tension going on between grandeur which he wants he, he 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 keeps asking his architects you know who's got the best palace in living times who's got the best palace in historical times which was the best roman palace etc etc and yet he really wants to, this to be done very inexpensively he hates wasting money and he's always complaining about the bills as they roll in as a great example on elba when he's beginning to have to you know very seriously accept the reduction in his in his means and his um his ambitions and and household and he wants this garden laid out and when he's presented with the bill he's furious and he says how can we have spent this much on a garden the size of my hand and by the way why did we get turf instead of grass seed actually elbers seems a good example i mean Poor old citizens of Elba. They haven't been paying taxes for a while because of, I think, the Napoleonic Wars, which, you know, he started. He arrives and he goes, oh, you owe a whole bunch of back taxes to keep me in, keep me in the style to which I'm accustomed. Mm. I mean, no wonder he wasn't popular there. Well, you see, again, I mean, I think actually there the were people, uh, according to some reports, you know, who, who, who were distraught when he left and who they might not have wanted him to come. But by the time he'd come, I sort of got on board with the idea that he was going to, to, to make that his home. They were very distraught when, when, when he decided to go back to France to, to have another go at reclaiming the empire. So I think there was charisma there and certainly there was, uh, you know, some sort of power that he had to make things happen. I mean, he starts improving Elba while he's there. It's like, you know, we, we've got to do something about these roads and, and, and this drainage system is is, is rubbish and, and, and I'm going to, by the way, you need a new theatre and I'm going to set it up and it's going to like this. So, so, you know, of course there was hostility before he arrived and, and, and uh, great suspicion. But I think certainly for some of the people, they become actually quite supportive of, of his presence. This is maybe a, a sort of too wide a historical question, but as a, as a sort of naive reader, why is it that after, you know, the collapse of his empire, you know, he'd messed everything up, why did they transplant him to Elba and say, look, you've got your own little principality and you can have these soldiers? I mean, wasn't this asking for trouble in the long run, as turned out when he escaped quite quickly and, you know, toppled the king again? 
Well, you're right. I mean, but the point, one of the reasons that he did try to escape was that he had heard there were plans to move him to St. Helena even before he escaped from Elba. And so, I mean, uh, before I wrote this book, I mean, I always thought, well, well, why didn't he just stick on Elba? You know, he could have had a great kingdom there and he could have, you know, wasn't very far away, etc. Why did he mess it all up by coming back and then ending up being posted off to, to St. Helena? But actually, he had reason to believe that he wasn't going to be allowed to stay, that actually the idea of moving him much further away was already very well developed at the point where he decided to to give it a last go. But leaving him with the retinue of soldiers, many of the honours he already had, was that because they knew he was so popular in so much of the country that, you know, we, they couldn't simply pack him off in humiliation? Well, they, I mean, uh, yeah, so he was meant to be paid a substantial amount of money yeah. by uh, France. And after all, you know, he had done a lot for France. I mean, everybody knows that. I mean, they, they had enough. They didn't want any more of these wars, etc. But the idea that he, you know, could just be somehow cancelled was not possible at, at that point. So, yeah, they, they said they were going to pay him a, a substantial amount an allowance per year, which then was never paid. So they're already backsliding on that. So there was a sense that, you know, he was a threat and so they'd got to sort of maneuver him carefully out of the of the power you know if he came as he did when he came back people would you know they would follow him there was a a possibility that he would destabilize again now waterloo obviously you know the great terminus Presumably you already knew this, but... As no, a, uh, I didn't. That was one of the most amazing things about my book because I'd wrote a draft of the last chapter on St Helena and then I went back to the beginning. And all the time I was moving through Corsica, through France, Egypt, finding gardens, etc. At the back of my mind, there was this problem. How on earth am I dealing with Waterloo? Like, I've got to do something on Waterloo... And how could I ever fit that into to the garden motif? Well, what a, what a way. I mean, I, I've written down the quote. You say, the future of France depended on conquering a single walled garden. That is an exaggeration. Um, what that is, is a basic argument that what happened in that walled garden was a battle within the battle. And that if they hadn't lost that battle within the battle, it might have had a significant effect on the wider battle. So, you know, this is not to to say that the whole of what happened and Waterloo can simply be reduced to that walled garden, but it is to say that that walled garden was incredibly important to both sides, to the French and to the Duke of Wellington. Duke of Wellington was, you know, whatever you do, you don't lose this garden. You hold on to it. Uh, and I didn't know that until I got to research that part. Got an absolute gift for the book. How many of the gardens that you talk about in here are still... I mean, some of them, obviously, things like the Tuileries are still around. But how many of the gardens on which Napoleon made a real impression still survive? Well, the St Helena one is there. Obviously, it has fallen into 
even in in his you know uh, when they go back to bring the body back to France in that twenty year period, it has already as is the nature of gardens or, or certainly private gardens that had completely declined. But there has been very serious attempts to reconstruct it, to rebuild the sunken paths that he had laid out. The bird cage that Chinese labourers on St. Helena made for his garden is in a, a museum in, in, in France and um, beautifully preserved. So I think that that particular garden is the most distinctive one. And, and it is the one in which he did did the gardening. I mean, he spent the most time gardening in that garden. So that's entirely appropriate. But the others, are, you know, the um, the gardens in Egypt, have, you know, where he, he has this uh, garden in, in the palace that he appropriates in Egypt, which ends up being also the garden in which his successor, the poor General Kleber, who's left behind whilst Napoleon slips off back to France, leaving an absolute catastrophe behind. And Kleber is assassinated in that garden. So, so things that they they they're not there. Um, you you know that they've dis- disappeared. Um, at the centre of, of Cairo, and then you know, obviously the public gardens, the large ones. I mean, some of them are ones that were never built that have a huge effect on him. So he has this dream um, that there would be this huge garden at the centre of Rome that would incorporate, you know, the forum and stretch up to the Colosseum, et cetera, et cetera. There is still, of course, and, and there was before he, he he was investing in that idea, gardens there on the Capitoline Hill, but they never really managed to realise that French dream. And even less so the one for the palace for the King of Rome at the centre of Paris, which he is very interesting. I mean, it starts off being, you know, even grander than Versailles on the banks of the Seine. And it ends up being a garden pavilion on the, on the side because that's actually, as the fortunes decline, that's what you're going to end up with. It's a very poignant couple of paragraphs that actually, as you describe what you're all these plans over several pages and then, you know, and then this happens, this happens, as the empire collapses. Now, it's a book into which and out of which flit all sorts of other people, including, you know, sort of Madame de Stael, who rather wonderfully seemed to have his number from the off. But one of the sort of poignant relations that really gripped me was with this guy, with a gardener, with Tuin. Can you tell me a bit about him? Because he's... He's wonderful. So Tuin is born in the Jardin des Plantes in the centre of Paris. His father was the gardener there before him. And he is caught up in the revolution and in preserving that garden at the centre of the revolution when, when, you know, the terror is basically in full force in Paris. There are still pictures of, of, of the Jardin des Plans with people peacefully walking in it. And, and Tuan was one of the people who, who very, very clearly remembered the sacrifices that had been made during the revolution. And he's basically a completely committed Republican. And he is a friend of Napoleon's. Napoleon goes there, they, they know each other, etc. But as Napoleon rises to power, the relationship becomes more and more strained because one of the things, well, two things actually, that are unacceptable to Tuan. The first is the 
the undoing of the revolutionary calendar that he had put so much effort into, along with other revolutionaries, the idea of having a calendar based upon the natural world with new names for for the the months and and, and the days and and all the emblems of of working in the fields and and, and uh, horticulture that were so important and Napoleon eventually just cancels this and says sorry you know we're going to go back to to the Gregorian character calendar this is way too complicated which is a fair point I mean it is it is extremely complex I'm impressed that you put the dates in that calendar in the book well I had this debate with my editor because she Jenny uh Ugo said to me look Ruth can we just have one or the other sets of dates because we can't you know it's very difficult in in the sentences to have both uh, all the time I said well but I want both because that shows the kind of the the huge sort of displacement of that period where they where even time has been revolutionized and it's very very important so it was important to me in my first book so so the 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 rejection of that is one of the things but the other thing that this gardener a long you know friend of um napoleon's from his from his republican days cannot accept is the legion of honor and the way in which napoleon wants to reintroduce distinctions between people into French society and is very excited about that and there's going to be you know different costumes for different ranks and it's not just going to be soldiers it's going to be civilians as well and the scientists are all going to be given you know honours and 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 they're going to have a new costume as well and it's hilarious so he says you know actually absolutely this distinguished botanist Swan is going to have a you know a be a be a member and he keeps on making excuses as to why he hasn't got time to get his costume fitted or he can't show up for any of the ceremonies but the real reason is that he sees it as a complete betrayal of of the best part of the revolution which is moving away from equality at the center of the society and he's very very suspicious of it and of course he's quite right to be yeah and you sense that he's sort of Retreats, doesn't he? Kind of Candide style to cultivate his own garden. That's right. And he says this great parable about the eagle, and which, of course, is one of the emblems of, of, of Napoleon's empire. And he says, well, you know, the eagle is in a, in a different stratosphere. You know, it, it, it can fly towards the sun. And I couldn't wear the emblem of the eagle because I'm concerned only with the earth. Well, there's plenty more in there. Ruska, thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, um, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.